Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, Welcome to Hope Brooklyn. If it's your first time, thanks for joining us. Uh, We are a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you are joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called A Subversive Church, A Subversive Church. We've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, And in it, effectively what he's doing is he's talking to these new Jesus followers and he's explaining to them how their mindsets, their ways of thinking, their ways of acting, perhaps look more like their wider society, like Corinth, than they look like God. And so he's attempting through uh, his letter to subvert their paradigm, subvert their understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a human, in order to form them into a subversive church. See what I did there? Subverting them to make them subversive. And today we're in chapter 10. So we're reaching the end of sort of the third section of Paul's thought. I don't know if you know this. This will be a fun fact for you to take with you. Uh, Chapters and verses in the Bible weren't around till the 1500s. Did you know that? Yeah. Before that, it was just all one text, all one document. And even more confusingly, in the Greek, because parchment and and like writing materials were so rare, um, there was no punctuation and there were no spaces. So it was just a block of letters. So you had to figure out like the flow of the author and the speaker. Um, But luckily we have very smart people who have done that for us. But all that to say, Sometimes when you, you know, wake up or you go to the, the Bible and you read, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in fact, that's in the middle of a longer discourse of Paul, a longer train of thought. And there have been three of those so far. Chapter 1 through 4, Paul's been saying effectively, no need for boasting. You don't need to boast in yourselves and others. You are in Christ. You have been given the kingdom. You are free. You are free and you are his. But that freedom, that, that being chosen, it needs to take the form of the cross, which we talked about as a very scandalous symbol. To have a cross-shaped thinking is to be looking in every way, in every manner, to be putting others before yourself, to be sacrificially committing yourselves for them. Chapter five through seven, he sort of takes that, that hypothesis, that theory, and he fleshes it out. He says, okay, well, if we are thinking on the lines of the cross, if we are thinking in the same way that God thought, who came in the form of human, who lived, who was a human, who lived a very human life and who died on the cross. If we are thinking along those terms, then what does that look like in regards to sex? Or what does that look like in regards to marriage or regards to to lawsuits? How do we interact with one another? So that's the second section. And then the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing is looking at chapters eight through 10, the third section. And basically asking the question of, well, if we're invited to people's parties, can we go? Asking questions of evangelism. Are we able to go? And so today we're going to be reading chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. So if you got your your handy dandy smartphones, or if not, we're going to put it up behind us. This is Paul concluding his, his third discourse here. So chapter 10, verse 1 through 22, this is what he writes. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our forebears were all under the cloud, 
They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and then the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now these things happened to them as examples, or we might say as paradigms. Whoo, flashback, some of y'all get it. And we're written down as, we did a series on Exodus called The Paradigm. That's, that's what it was. Um, <laughs> these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Will you join me in prayer? Lord, these are tough words. They're sharp words. I confess I don't fully grasp what you're getting at. What Paul is communicating. But I pray, Lord, as we turn our hearts to them today that wherever we may be on, on this spectrum, whether we accept your claims and call you Lord or whether we're still figuring that out or whether we don't know what that means, would you open our hearts to the truth of your good news, to the truth of your gospel that longs to love and set all free. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so chapters eight through 10 is essentially asking one question. The church in Corinth, they're asking, okay, my friends who are not followers of Jesus, they've invited me to a party at their house. Uh, and at this party, there are meat sacrificed to idols. Can I go? Don't worry about the meat sacrificed to idols thing. That's, that's ancient context. For our context, what would be sort of a parallel are, can I go to, another people's, to other people's parties? Especially knowing that the people who are inviting me and maybe what's gonna happen to that party is not gonna be like, honoring of God. Like we have two different premises of the world. Is it safe? Is it okay to go to these, to other people's tables? Chapter eight, the answer is of course. It's perfectly safe. Not only is it perfectly safe, but you must go. 
you must go to their tables. But make sure when you go that you make decisions that put your family first. Your family meaning those who call Jesus Lord, those in this space. Put your family first. That is to say, act in love. And when I talk about love, basically the Christian understanding of love, uh, the word agape means sacrificial commitment. So to agape someone is to sacrificially commit yourself to their building up. And that doesn't mean when you're acting in love that they get everything they want and I get nothing I want. That's not love. But love is to say, how can I make a decision for you where you are that allows you to understand how deep how deeply God loves you. That's agape love. So Paul says, if you're invited to go to other people's tables, go. But make sure when you make that decision that you're thinking of your brothers and sisters and putting them first. Chapter nine, interestingly, Paul says, can can we go to tables? Yeah, you can. But if chapter eight is about putting your family first, chapter nine says, put the person who invited you first. Make sure that when you make these decisions that you're loving the people who invited you to their table. So he talks about holding his identity loosely. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I become a Greek. I become all things to all people so that I may partake in the gospel and save some. So chapter eight and nine are both imploring us to make decisions based on a cross-shaped love, to put others first, to see their flourishing right where they are above our own. In essence, this entire discourse, chapter eight through 10, is about evangelism. And Joseph did a great job talking about that last week. Evangelism. Evangelism is kind of, it sort of is a dirty word in our context now. And it's a dirty word as he expounded on last week because evangelism has sort of become this very simplistic in and out power struggle. It's we're in, you are out. We need to give you information so you can be in. But I wonder if we understand evangelism in the classic sense, if that's at all what God has in mind. So if you're part of the round table, you already know this, um, but evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, euangelion. And it effectively means a good news report. And it actually has a historical referent. So in the, in the Roman empire, when Rome would be um, fighting battles on their frontiers and they defeated the people group and they annexed more land, they expanded the empire, they would send a messenger with the euangelion, with the good news report to run all the way back to the capital city, to Rome and say, hear the good news. Rome's empire has expanded, right? That is the historical referent of a good news report, of evangelism, to deliver good news. Now, here's my question. From the time that they won the battle and expanded their empire to the time that the messenger got back and delivered the message, was there any point where those living in the capital city, Rome, were living in a smaller empire? Weren't they already in the expanded empire? There was no in or out. Both the messenger who knows this good news and those who he's delivering it to are both living in an expanded empire. The difference is they just don't know it. It's a power. For us, evangelism has become a power thing. We have power, we are better. And now let me tell you so you can become better like us. But that's not at all what it is in this classic sense. In the classic sense, here's here's the gospel. Here's the good news. 
God has not abandoned the world. And here's how we know that. We see his son, Jesus. We see the life he lived. We see the death he died. We see the empty tomb. The good news is that God has returned and he's saving the world. Though we do not deserve it, he's saving it. And all are accepted if they will allow themselves to be accepted. There is no difference between you and me, which then if we understand evangelism like this, which means you and I need to be evangelized every single day. I need to be reminded of this new reality that God has returned every single day. I need to hear the good news over and over and over. And so in that context, evangelism is nothing more than living a life through words and actions overflowing with love for others because of the love of God revealed in Jesus. As Joseph pointed out, <coughs> our evangelism historically has been, this is who you should be, how do we get you there? Paul's evangelism is who are you? How may I serve you? That's the power of God in us that frees us up to love others, to live in this new world, to be for people. So if chapter eight is, all right, you're invited to other people's tables. Can I go? Yes, but make sure you're loving your family here. Make sure you're evangelizing them. Make sure they know the good news by your decisions. Chapter nine is, yes, you can go, but make sure you're loving those who invited you. Make sure the way you live is putting them first, that they know the good news by the way you live. And chapter 10 is, but make sure you love God most of all. Idols are nothing, says Paul, but also they're something. And you're a sinner, which is to say your nature falls short. So don't be cavalier about it. Love means you must go to these tables and you're perfectly fine to go there. But be careful because you could also be destroyed by these tables. So in a sense, what Paul is doing is chapter eight and nine was like pushing us out the door, like go, go, go. Chapter 10 is, but just be careful how you go. It provides a corrective to the last two chapters. And we're gonna talk about that. Now you might notice as I've been talking that it doesn't seem clear. <laughs> it seems a bit, I don't know, like just uneven, imbalance. In fact, there's a paradox present. The paradox of evangelism is what I'm calling it. Now you and I, we hate paradoxes, hate them because we're constantly looking to smooth them out. In essence, a paradox is this, point A, point A is true. Point B, point B is also true. However, on the surface, if point A is true, it would seem to contradict point B. And if point B were true, it would seem to contradict point A, but they don't. They're both equally true and valid. We just can't see it. My favorite definition of paradox comes from G.K. Chesterton. And he's talking about the church and this is what he writes. He says, it is constantly assured that when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. But that is brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That, is, that was his attempt at a joke, by the way. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is, can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? That is the problem the church attempted. That is the miracle she achieved. See, a paradox is when a lion remaining a real lion lies down with the lamb, remaining a real lamb, and they remain friends. 
right? If the lion becomes lamb-like, we're not in a paradox anymore. If the lamb becomes like a chihuahua, like a lion or something, we're not in a paradox anymore. If they both remain themselves and they're both still true, that's the paradox. And that's what's going on. Paul's sort of figuring out this paradox, working it through. And you see paradox everywhere in, in the scriptural story and in, in God's interaction because we have two separate truths and planes. We have the heavenly plane, God's truth, and we have this world where he's inserting himself. He's working in history. My favorite example of paradox comes from Exodus 15. And in this story, God is leading Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they're about to cross over the Red Sea. You might know it. And so they're about to cross over the Red Sea. However, Egypt has decided, what did we do letting them go? We've got to go and and sort of recapture them. So Israel sees Egypt chasing them and they're starting to get afraid. Like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Moses says to them, peace, you need only be still. God will fight for you. That's what he says to Israel. Don't worry, be still and watch, God will fight for you. And then he starts to pray. And like a verse or two later, God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to move. (laughs) And so you're left wondering, well, well, which one is it? Should we be still and God fights for us? Or should we move? Paradox, what is it? Faith or action? Yes, (laughs) yes, it's both. We, we are given faith. We have faith that God will fight for us. And we also move knowing that he's fighting for us. That is the paradox. And it's present throughout all the characters and all the stories of, of the Bible. And in fact, I think there's actually like a concept, a practice, a word that provides a way forward in this paradox. What's the way out of this? How do we uphold both faith and action? Prayer prayer. And some of y'all who I've been having conversations with know that if there's anything that God's been impressing upon my heart this last bit of time, it is, man, the power and the importance of prayer. Like about everything, about everything. Um, There was a, uh, I mentioned this last week briefly, but there was a conference that Hope Church, we we hosted about a week ago. And um, this pastor, Eleanor Mumford, um, she came and spoke. And she told a little bit of her story. And essentially, uh, she, was, she was a Christian for a long time, um, but she was the sort of Christian where um, she affirmed that there was a God and that God did love her, but she wasn't sure that God actually acted on that love and was involved intimately and personally in her life. And so, and she was fine with that by her own words. She was totally fine with that. Um, so her and her husband, um, they were, they were living, they're English, they were living in England, pastoring a church, and then she contracted meningitis one time. And they tried everything, and it just, to no avail, she was incredibly sick. And then they had a group of friends who, as she calls them, uh, they were that charismatic bunch. And um, essentially they were like, hey, can we, can we pray with you? And her first response is, absolutely not. <laughs> I do not want that. Why? But she goes, here's what they're going to do. They're gonna lay their sweaty, swarmy hands all over me. They're gonna invade my personal space and they're gonna speak in tongues. 
They're gonna do all three of these things and it's just gonna be God awful is what she says. And she asked her husband, she's like, John, do I have to do this? And he's like, I don't see another way out. Like, let's just go get this over with. And so they go. And she goes, I have to report that my, my theories were correct. Everything happened that I thought was gonna happen. They laid sweaty, swarmy hands on me. Um, they prayed in tongues, they invaded my personal space and I was dreadfully uncomfortable, she says, um, the entire time. The only problem is, is that I was healed of meningitis. And she's like, now what the heck do I do with this? <laughs> Needless to say, her and John opened themselves up to the power of the Holy Spirit and their lives, the power of God today. And they, they actually, they started the vineyard movement in the UK, so they, um, which is a movement of Christianity, which I can explain at another time. Um, and they've started like hundreds of churches in London. And then during this talk, she just told story after story. And she goes, I, I usually tell stories because I know people like you and me, and she was talking to the pastors in the room, but also us, we like to hear these stories. We just don't have enough faith to actually live into them. And I was like, oh, that cuts so deep. <laughs> and she told stories, she said one time, um, she was at a prayer meeting and uh, she was encouraging people that, to, to listen, that God is present and God hears to take steps of faith. Um, and this one woman there, she felt she, she was, it was weird and she, wasn't no, she didn't know it was true and she had doubts, but she just felt like God saying, uh, the woman behind her, tell her she's gonna be a good mom. She's like, oh my gosh. So she turns around, she's like, you're gonna be a good mom and turns back around. <laughs> That's all she does. The woman behind her breaks into tears. She had just learned she was pregnant and she had an abortion scheduled for that week. Ends up becoming a follower of Jesus that night. Another time, um, they are just at a worship gathering and there's a, a teenage girl there who's worshiping and just is overcome with love, with the love of God. And becomes, says, all right, I don't know what this means, but I'm gonna, I guess I'll follow you, God, because this seems so real. And uh, no one know, knew, but she had been cutting herself for a while. She gets home that night and the scars of her cutting were gone. They weren't there. <laughs> and Eleanor Mumford's telling these stories saying, look, I, I, I know it seems so hard and I know that many of you in this room have been abused by things that have happened in the name of God, I know that. But here's the thing, it is the primary practice that Jesus left his people. It is the way in the paradox. It's the way that we say, um, God has to move and God wants to move, but also we're taking steps in it as well. And she goes, and here's the thing, many people ask me the question, usually the first question I get is, what happens when you pray and nothing happens, right? And um, she goes, and that does happen. That happens a fair bit. And with all the gentleness that a older British woman can possess, she goes, when people ask me, what happens when you pray and nothing happens? She goes, frankly, that's not my concern. It's not for me to save, it's not for me to heal, but I can assure you that if I don't pray, nothing will happen. Which that just shook me, that dislodged something in me. It's, it's almost like it's the difference between me asking Jesus for something because I don't really believe in him and I want him to prove himself versus me asking for Jesus for something, knowing that he can heal and he's present and he's active and he desires to work and fully leaving the ball in his courts. Like saying, asking, saying, you don't have to prove yourself. I know who you are, but please will you move? 
but please will you move? How do I move without faith? How do I get faith unless I move? Both happen at the same moment in prayer. We kind of just sang a song about it. Um, And that song, and I don't know if you know this, but that third song, he might get mad at me for telling you this, Jay wrote himself, which is awesome. Um, But in that third song, he talks about how love descends at the moment that we lift up our hearts. They both happen at the same moment. And that's what goes on in prayer. That's the paradox. That's the way through. So if we're talking about the paradox, that was kind of like a bit of an aside. That has really not too much bearing on the sermon. I'm just thinking a lot about it right now. So I'd love for you to join me in prayer about everything. Um, big things, small things, just be in prayer. But we're talking about the paradox of evangelism. That's what Paul's been getting at these last three chapters. How do we communicate the good news to the world that God has not abandoned it? That death is not the final reality that love, that we can enter into spaces with love through action, words, and prayer. But here's the paradox of evangelism, and you might already see it. To love someone truly is to accept them right where they are, isn't it? If you're loving them, wanting them to change, you're not really loving them. You're loving who they might become, right? We do this all the time. It's called getting married, And then we learned three years in, oh, I actually loved who I thought you might become. It's like, that's, you learned that lesson. Um, But right, to love someone truly is to love them right where they are. Right where they are, saying you don't have to change a thing, you are accepted. But to love them truly because of knowing this good news of God's love is to want them to know God's love, which will imply a change. The paradox of evangelism. To go to another table in love, to truly see someone means they truly see you, means you know them, you love them right where they are. But to go to another table in love through the love of Jesus is to want them to know that same love that sets free. So we both move and we have faith. And in chapter 10, what we're seeing is what happens when we don't pray. What might happen, what possibly could happen when we don't enter into the paradox of evangelism with prayer. See, the situation of the Corinthians is just like what it was with Israel under Moses. As Paul says, these things were examples. They were types to teach us. Paul writes, all the Israelites, they passed under the cloud. Um, And for those of you who don't know the story, when when God led Israel out of Egypt, there were a lot of spiritual encounters where he led them in the form of a cloud, in the form of a fire. He parted the Red Sea. Um, Moses hit a a rock and water came out of it. Uh, There was bread that rained down from heaven. So a lot of like spiritual phenomenon happened that sort of defied um, rational explanation. And Paul's saying, All of them experienced this. All ate the food, all drank the water from the rock, all passed through the cloud and through the sea. They tasted this spiritual goodness. They experienced the good news. They knew that they were chosen and accepted and safe with God. They knew they were free to live in a world he was redeeming. Yet they were enticed away to worship idols. It's an interesting phrase. 
to worship idols. And in fact, many scholars say the entire point of chapters eight through 10 is in the one verse, chapter 10, verse 14, where Paul goes, flee from the worship of idols. What's going on here? What's he saying? Tim Keller writes that idols are counterfeit gods, counterfeit gods. They are good things made ultimate things to us. They are good things that we turn into ultimate things, into the sources of our identity. So things like work, things like recreation, our leisure, things like our family, our spouses, our friendships, the good and noble causes that we care about. All of this is good stuff that God cares about as well. The issue is it becomes an idol is when we turn those good things into ultimate things for us, into the source of our identity. David Kim has this great line and he talks about it uh, in relation to work, but it can be for everything. He goes, the stuff of the world was supposed to have been the expression of our identity, but instead it's become the source of it. So in work, and we talked about this a while back in our faith and work series, we are all given different passions and different vocations and our work is supposed to be how we express our identity as those beloved by God. That's how we express it. But instead, when we don't know that we're those beloved by God, we look to our work to validate us, don't we? We look to our work to be the source of our identity. And in that case, we are worshiping our work. We are turning it into an idol and it's destroying us. And we don't just do that with work. We do that with the best things of life. We do it in marriage. God wants me to put Anna first. That is to say, to sacrificially commit myself to my wife. That is to say, in every decision, which I fail at all the time, but in every decision, to to make a decision such that she can see the love of God for her through me. That's the highest expression of what I can be as as a, a husband who follows Jesus. However, if I make, the putting of her first, the source of who I am. If I make that my identity, I am one who puts my wife first. I am one who sacrificially commits myself to her. Well, then I've made her into an idol and it's starting to corrode and corrupt. C.S. Lewis writes, the danger of loving our fellow creatures too little was less present than that of loving them idolatrously. In every wife, mother, and child, And friend, we see a possible rival to God. That's a scary quote. To look into the eyes of your child, the the most beloved, to look into the eyes of your spouse, to look into the eyes of your best friend, your siblings, your parents, and to see a possible demon. To see one that could lead you astray to love them as the expression of who you are, but they are also a rival God, potentially, if you're not careful. And see, that was the issue with the Corinthians. They knew the true reality of the world. Chapter eight and nine, can we go to other people's tables? Of course you can. You can and you must. You are totally free to go to those tables. But if you make that freedom if you make that freedom to go to other people's tables, 
the source of who you are, if you forget that that freedom came through a relationship with God, then you will be led away to worship idols, rival gods. And see, in chapter 10, what's going on? You and I, it's pretty easy to see the danger of workaholism, right? We live in New York. We see every day what happens when people make work into a rival God, into an idol. We see that. We see the danger of hedonism. We live in an adult playground. It's very easy to put ourselves first. And both of those, work and hedonism, that's me putting myself first. I see the danger of putting myself first. But do you see the danger of putting others first? That's what Paul's getting at. Chapter eight and nine, he goes, put others first. Put your family first. Put, put the people who are inviting you, put them first. That is the highest form of who you are, to put others first. But there's also a danger in putting others first. Because you don't worship putting others first. You worship Jesus. We see the danger in selfishness, but do we see the danger in love? There's danger there too. Do we see the danger in loving your spouse? Do you see the danger in loving your child? Do you see the danger in loving your friends? Chapter eight and nine was all about the cross, sacrificially committing yourself to others. That's the highest expression of who you are. But chapter 10 says, even that, even putting others first can become an idol. It can become a rival God. There's an invisible line, Paul seems to say. There's an invisible line that teeters between love and worship. Love and worship. And when it's crossed, the good things you're loving have now become an idol destroying you. Um, there's a church who I love, I have history with, and I don't know all the details, but I just bring this up as an example. Um, the, the, the movie out, The Greatest Showman, um, which my wife is obsessed with, I still haven't seen. But there's this song in it called This Is Me, and it's, a, it's, like, it's like the humanist anthem. It's a great song. It's about like, you know, loving uh, the marginalized, loving the outcast of society, not just loving, but like accepting that's who you are. It's a great song. Um, but I saw that, that this church, they performed it on Easter Sunday, which again, I don't know any context around it. I don't know what the pastor said before or after. And, and, and so I'm giving them totally the benefit of the doubt. But just judging on that alone, I think based on this text, Paul would say that's dangerous. Because both are saying the same things. It's so slight. It's so subtle. And I know this might even sound a little mean because this song is saying everyone's perfect right where they are. Love everyone. Which Christians would say that's true. <laughs> Christians would say everyone is accepted right where they are. Love everyone. No modes of power, no status. Love everyone, especially love those who are deemed outcast by society. They are accepted right where they are. The difference is in the premise behind why we do it. Where one says, um, we love everyone right where they are because you are perfect right where you are. Where the other says, we love everyone right where they are because Christ has loved us right where I am. And that's a slight and subtle difference. And if we, and I see it happening sometimes and I'm tempted toward it. But if we as the church sort of move toward that first one, 
And what happens is we remove the crucified Jesus off the cross and we replace it with love. We start worshiping love with no undergirding of why. And it might look the exact same, but there's a fundamental difference to it. There's a fundamental difference. It's the paradox of chapters eight through 10. Chapters eight and nine, Paul is trying to teach us that we must, we must love others more than ourselves. We must put them first. That is love of others is the highest expression of who we are as Jesus followers. Karl Barth writes, love is the destruction of everything that is like God. Love destroys every idol. To love is, it's to get so close to the kingdom. It is to look just like the kingdom. You can and you must go to the tables of those who don't know Jesus and you must do it without wanting to change them as they are, that is love. But chapter 10 says, but even love of others can cross over from being an expression of who I am to being the source of who I am. And when that happens, love has become a rival God and it's pushed Jesus off the cross. We don't, we aren't people defined by love. We are people defined by Christ. That is the source of who we are. The good news is that God has returned to the world, is involved in history, is involved in our lives, is in a personal relationship and we can be in that. And because of this, the highest expression of that is love. But that can also become an idol if we forget the premise. So C.S. Lewis writes, love having become a God becomes a demon. Food sacrificed to idols is nothing. You can go and eat and drink and not be afraid. And you can go in the name of loving those at their tables, not wanting to change them at all. But be careful that love of them doesn't become your idol because we still go with the prayer that God would meet them, that they would know the same love that has won our hearts, that has compelled us to love at all. So Paul ends chapter 10 with a very famous phrase, and maybe you know it. This is ending both eight, nine, and 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Don't do everything so as to love your neighbor. Though if you're doing stuff for the glory of God, it will look a lot like loving your neighbor, but do everything for the glory of God. Um, there's just, I'm trying to find like a tangible story to illustrate this because it's, kind of, it's kind of complex. Um, and this is a, a little off, but I think it gets at the paradox of evangelism. So um, I have some friends who are pastors in a town in Ohio and um, uh, the, the wife, she, she was experiencing this burden on her heart for, for sex trafficking. She was experiencing this burden um, for, for our culture of objectification um, and, and really just feeling this burden to pray, to pray. And um, there's a, there's a, there was a strip club or there's a strip club uh, right by where the church meets. And so she would see it all the time. And so God just led it on her heart to be praying for this place, to be praying uh, for the people who work here, be praying for the women who work here, to, be, to pray for the patrons who enter into these spaces, just to be praying. So she did for a while and then uh, she felt led by God, for her and a group, uh, to enter into the space. And so she went in and she met with the owner 
And the owner was really kind. She goes, that was really surprising. It goes to show how we caricature and generalize people. Um, but was really kind. And her question to him was, how can we serve you? And how can we serve the women who work here? Her thing was not, we want to shut you down. Her thing was right where you are, right where everyone is in this space. How can we love you? But of course her prayer is, oh Lord God, meet them. The guy denied, it, denied like any help. He's like, we're good. Thank you so much, but we're, we're fine. And so they leave um, and they continue praying. And then about a month and a half later, she, I just heard about this. She learned, um, she was walking by and um, the strip club is being sold. It's been shut down and it's being sold. She doesn't know what's happened. Now she's entering into the next steps of reaching out again, seeing what's going on. How can we serve? How can we get jobs? Like, how can we enter into this space? But I think that's a small example of the paradox of evangelism right there. That's a way we enter in and say, you don't have to change. You are accepted right where you are. How can we serve you? But also we are praying with everything in our hearts that the same love that has met us will meet them too. We'll meet them too. And that's, that's the call placed on every one of us as followers of Jesus, not to save, not to sanctify, not to do any of that, to love, to accept, to serve, to be with, but to be with because Christ has entered the world and is with us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we uh, just show us how to do that. Give us courage to do that. Break us out of our, our false mindsets um, that seek to draw hard and fast lines around people and separate people. We need to know your good news all over again. Every day, we need to know that God has not abandoned the world, that he loves us and he's entered in to be in relationship with us. And give us that courage to live to live out that love is an expression of who we are every single day. Lord, I pray for each person in here that they would sense in their hearts a return to prayer. Or if they are not a follower of you and they don't know, you know, sort of this whole Jesus thing or who you are, God, would they sense in their hearts a beginning, an invitation to prayer, an invitation to say, who are you, God? Will you reveal yourself to me? Would you, would you give each person in here the courage to step boldly into the world that you are making new, to step boldly into this new reality that we can pray big prayers. We can pray for impossible things because you care deeply for us. You care deeply for this world and you do answer. And we don't pray that in a sense for you to prove yourself. We pray that because we know that that's the type of God you are. So just give people courage to pray. Give people courage to step and meet them, Father. As they take a step of faith, will you give them faith and meet them? Lord, we confess we can do nothing without you. All the love we have is because you came, you gave up your glory and you came as a human in humbleness, and brokenness. You lived a life that accepted people. 
You called them to your table. And you said that their God was not angry at them, but was for them. To be free. To be free to be in community, in the real family, the new family. So we love you, Lord. Reveal to us who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.